Bibles to Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one, we're going to read verses one through eleven. This is the inerrant, authoritative word of God. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love." For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father God, we uh, cherish your word. It is our delight to be able to study it, and I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach it, and each one of us to uh, uh, accept it, to receive it with meekness as the implanted word, and to grow by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been uh, looking at some of the missing ingredients that keep Christians from finding victory in their lives. And because this has been uh, kind of a a rough week, actually Thursday, Friday, and Saturday were totally written off, I thought I would pull out an old sermon I preached back in 99 or 2000, I think it was. And uh, uh, I think it's a passage that deals with some missing ingredients in in sanctification almost better than any other. And uh, I think it's good for us to be reminded of these things. If you look at verse 12, it says, For this reason I will not be negligent, to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Now, for most of you guys, this is going to be a review, but it's very important that we get uh, these reminders from time to time. Now, one of the questions that came up as we were going through the series is, what in the world is the relationship between God's divine sovereignty and our works or between His grace and our efforts? If everything is of grace, how can we add anything If everything is of uh, God's Spirit working through us, then are we to be totally passive? And yet we see in verses 2 through 4, even though God has given us absolutely everything for life, in verse 5, he says, nonetheless, but also for this very reason. In other words, it's not in contrast to that. It's precisely because God does everything for this very reason, giving all diligence Add to your faith virtue. Now, in the eyes of many people, this is just a flat-out contradiction. <laughs> if God's given to us everything to, you know, for life and godliness, how can we add anything in our lives? In fact, it, um, 
it brings up the whole discussion of what is the interplay between God's grace and our efforts in sanctification. This is a repeated theme all the way through the Bible. Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You wouldn't even be willing to work it out if God hadn't worked it in, right? And so God's grace works in us. We work out what he enables us to do. And uh, so to the question, how do you frame mathematically uh, sanctification, it's quite an easy answer. There are people out there who say we have to be totally, totally passive in our sanctification. It's 100% God. It's 0% us. It's monergism, just like with regeneration. There's no uh, cooperation on our part. In regeneration, we contribute nothing, right? We're totally passive. Uh, Corpse can't contribute anything. He's just resurrected, right, by God's grace. And so they say, we're passive, 100% God, 0% us. Other people say, no, God starts the ball rolling through regeneration, but sanctification is up to us. It's zero God, it's 100% us. Others say, no, it's a cooperation, it's 50%, 50%. The mathematical equation that the Bible gives, it's 100% God, and it's 100% us. Okay, we are the ones that are being sanctified. We are the ones that are moving, but we could only move if God was working in us both to will and to do of God's good pleasure. And we can see that in the first four verses. He starts in verse 1, a second sentence. He says, to those who have obtained like precious faith. Now, the Greek word for obtained means to, be, to receive or to be allotted something. It's a gift. It's something given to us. And uh, you'll recognize that faith is uh, the first building block or the first link in the chain of uh, sanctification later on in your outline. And so we're supposed to be exercising faith, but the first thing we exercise, he says, has been given to us over and over again in the scripture. Faith is said to be a gift of God. And what I want uh, you to notice, that's not news to you, but I want you to notice that God does not give Peter a different kind of faith than he gives to you. Now, as we've gone through the last couple of sermons, you might think the reason Peter and the apostles are more holy than we are and than I am is because God has shortchanged me. I've got defective merchandise, okay? I have not been given the kind of faith that Peter was given, and God absolutely denies that. He says, no, you have obtained like precious faith. In fact, in my margin, um, uh, it says a faith of the same value. Common usage of the Greek uh, um, uh, 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 word isotimon is an identical measure of value. And so what he is saying is your faith is just as capable of claiming victory from the throne of grace as Peter's faith was. Now, if that is true, that is revolutionary. That's unbelievable. That's incredible. Every one of you who has come to faith in Jesus Christ has the ability to be sanctified in the same degree that Peter was sanctified because you've been given the same measure of value. As we go through this sermon, you might be arguing with me and saying, well, it sure doesn't feel like I've got the same uh, faith. I'm not saying you have the same amount of faith because there are people who have small faith. There are people who have great faith. Uh, We need to stretch our faith. We need to exercise our faith. So I'm not saying that there aren't people who have far uh, greater and stronger faith. But Jesus says, if you have so much as 
is so small amount of faith that it's as small as a mustard seed, you can still say to that mountain, be plucked up and cast into the sea, and it will be done so, right? So the point is, you are just as capable of claiming things from God's throne as Peter was. Your problem may be that you're not exercising your faith, growing your faith, developing your faith as, as Peter did. And so God gets the ball rolling by regenerating us. Uh, he gives us faith, uh, and it's faith in Christ's righteousness. And so he says, faith in the righteousness of our God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And then God keeps providing in rich measure. Look at the last phrase in verse 2. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. So don't ever think you have been shortchanged. Now, I know many people feel that way. It's just the reason I'm struggling, the reason I'm failing is because God has not given me what I need. And God says, no, no, that, that is not the case. And I give these verses over and over to you're probably sick of them. But Ephesians 1 says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're just not taking it. We're not appropriating what is already ours in Christ. And so, if you are not holy, it's because you are not furnishing out the responsibilities in verses 5 through 11 by faith. Now, verse 3 says that his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Nothing has been left out. Okay? And if that was not enough, he goes on to say, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Now, uh, there are some heretics who say that we have become divine. That's not what he says there. We partake of God, okay? We taste and see that He is good. We are indwelt by His presence. We receive of His graces uh, within us, and even His communicable attributes are, are, are brought to bear in our lives. And so uh, He starts everything. He finishes everything. He continues everything. Uh, God receives all the glory. Now, here's where we're going to be uh, saying, despite that fact that it is 100% of God, we are not to be passive. We are not to just be sitting around saying, okay, let God do it, you know? And uh, there's a radio preacher by the name of, um, well, I forget his name. George is his last name. And he's very much that way. He says, oh, no, you don't, con you don't do anything. You God will just do it on his own. Just don't worry about it. Uh, when people call on, one time they called up on the radio show and said, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant. Is it okay if I get a, an abortion? He says, I'm not going to answer that because that'd be legalistic. God's spirit will sanctify you in his own good time. No, 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 no. That's not God's idea of, uh, of sanctification. There are things that we uh, must do. We must be very, very involved. And so verses 1 through 4 um, indicate God provides everything. And then the verses we're going to be focusing on say, there is because he's provided everything, we are enabled by his grace to work on this sanctification. And the first thing we need to exercise is diligence in gaining biblical knowledge. Verse 5 says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now, I just want to focus on the, the phrase for this very reason, because he's pointing back to verses 1 through 4, and he's indicating there's something in verses 1 through 4 that require our diligence. Already he's hinted at our diligence in verses 1 through 4, and I want to walk us through that. Verse 1 says that we have faith in the righteousness of Jesus. Well, how do we know about that righteousness? It's in the Bible, which means we've got to study the Bible. 
Uh, likewise, verse 2. Peter not only speaks of grace and peace being multiplied, he tells us how that peace is multiplied. It's in the knowledge of him. Or where, where do we get the knowledge of him? It's in the Bible. It's in the book, right? And so if we're not being exposed to the Bible, we're not going to be able to uh, receive that. Verse 3 says that Peter not only says that God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, but he tells us how that happens. It's through the knowledge of him. Well, that implies we've got to be in a place where we can receive that knowledge. Verse 4, um, it says, uh, through these great and precious promises, we become partakers of God's nature and power. Now, that implies we have to be hearing those scriptures, right? And so, there isn't anything in verses 1 through 4 that does not come in some way through the word of God. And uh, that means we have to be in contact with the Word. And what this means in practical terms is that you will never, ever be sanctified if you are not in the Word of God. If you don't attend the preaching of the Word, if you don't uh, have the reading, and the memorization of the Word, if you're not studying books, you will not ever be sanctified, period. And it also means you are going to be sanctified to the degree that you get into God's Word. If you saturate yourself in the Word of God, like Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about, where you're, you're, you're giving it to your family, you're washing your wife in the Word of God, you're, you're teaching your children, you're bringing God's Word to bear on all of those things, the family is going to be growing like crazy, but it's got to be in the context uh, 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 of the Word of God. And when God brings revival to the church, He always makes people hungry for the Word. He always makes them hungry. And so what I want to ask you this morning is, how much time do you spend in the Word of God? I want you to evaluate that. And if you do not think it is sufficient for your sanctification, I want you to make a commitment and sign in the margin, I'm going to carve out of my schedule some more time. And you say, I just don't have time at home. But maybe you could plug a tape into your tape deck, you know, when you're out driving. There is different ways in which we can make sure that we're in the Word of God a little bit more. In fact, you know, when I came back from uh, Ethiopia to Canada, um, I was just blown away by the shallowness and the lack of interest in the Word of God. People wanted 15, 20-minute sermons. I'd never heard of such a thing in my life. We had two-hour uh, sermons, three-hour services, but it was two-hour sermons, and the people could not get enough of the Word of God. They loved it. They hungered after it. And I came to the States, and I thought, there is something wrong here when the people do not have a desire, a hungering after the Word of God. Babies, when they're born again, what, I mean, when they're born first, what happens? They're, man, they're starting sucking right away, aren't they? I mean, they're hungry. They want the milk of um, the mother. And God says we need to long for the milk of the word as well. So let me one more time read this scripture to you about how important it is to be in the word. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So memorize. Memorize the word. Meditate upon the word. Pick up a commentary. Read that commentary from cover to cover. I only know of about four or five people in this uh, 
uh, congregation here who have actually read an entire commentary from cover to cover. Make sure it's a good one. <laughs> but um, there's different ways we need to commit on that. Okay, second thing that we need to do is to exercise the faith that God has already given by claiming provisions, stepping out in obedience to his word. Now, verse 5 implies we already have faith. He doesn't say, I want you to add faith to your life. We can't add faith. It's a gift of God, right? In verse 1, we've obtained it from the Lord. It's been given as, as an allotment, but he expects us to exercise that faith, laying claim to the things that are, uh, that are uh, in, in the heavenlies. We must be stretching it. And so every link in this chain that we're going to be talking about of sanctification, every link is something we claim from the throne. Self-control, it's a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? So by faith, we need to claim it from the Spirit. Perseverance, love, uh, you know, the agape love, all of those things are, are exercised by faith. Now, I failed. I was going to change the outline Again, and um, I failed to do it. So under that um, point B, I want you to put three things that we need to watch out for when it comes to faith, uh, three errors that I think we get ourselves into. And the first error is to think that we can have faith apart from the Word of God. Now, you may think I'm, you know, just running over the same territory again. I am. But uh, it, it's so important that we not divorce verse 5 from verses 1 through 4. Okay, the exceedingly great and precious promises. These are the things that stir up faith within us, and it's for this reason that we give all diligence. Faith that steps out where God is not commanded is not faith. It is presumption. And I know lots of people who think that they are stepping out in faith when really they are not, and they say, hey, it was an open door. And uh, I've, you know, taken a risk on this, but it was an open door. And, you know, you can go through the scriptures and you can find a number of examples of open doors that were actually Satan providing that opportunity for sin. You know, Jonah was running away from the Lord and, hey, it's a, a ship, it's going the right direction and it's an open door, you know, the leading of the Lord. And I've said over and over to this congregation, some open doors lead to elevator shafts with a rude awakening at the bottom, right? And some of you guys are mouthing the rest of the sentence. They knew exactly what I was going to be saying. Faith is founded on the Scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And I think that's very, very important. You cannot grow in faith. You can't have faith in the first place apart from the Word, and you can't grow in faith apart from the Word. Now, the second error is to think that faith makes us passive. You know, another illustration I frequently give on that other one is crossing the Jordan River. You know, don't take promises out of context. Sometimes people say, well, the Bible's given me a promise here. Um, and I use the silly example. God um, told the Israelites to go across the Jordan River. Because he had commanded them, they could have faith, and the rivers parted for them. Now, if we take that out of context and we say, hmm, they could do it, I can do it. I'm going to cross the Missouri River. You step in, you're going to get wet. Why? Because God has not given you any promise about parting those waters, nor has he given you any command. But where he has commanded you and where he has given promise in the word of God, that's where you need to step out. And it's going to feel just as difficult as crossing the Jordan felt to the Israelites back then. So again, you do found it on the scripture, but don't take them out of context. Second error is to think that faith makes us passive. Uh, some Christians use the divine sovereignty of verses 1 through 4 as an excuse for laziness and waiting for God to do it. And that expression, let go and let God... 
I mean, there's an element of truth there, but as a whole, it's not a biblical expression. Any examples of faith that you find in the Word of God are action. They're action verbs. Um, and here, it's that, that's way, the way it is as well. Faith is not pitted against diligence. On the contrary, it says, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Read Hebrews 11 sometime, and you will see that absolutely every example of faith that is given from the Old Testament was an example where there was action. It, it, it speaks of, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, he sojourned. By faith, he offered up Isaac. It's always active, and we've got a total misconception of faith if we just sit back and say, okay, I have faith that God's going to sanctify me or he's going to do whatever needs to be done. No, we've got to be involved very much in the process. Third error connected to faith is thinking we can engage in spiritual disciplines without faith. And this is where we freak, this is where I ran many times before. I want to please the Lord, and I don't have the time to mess around, you know, with praying and other silly things like that. I've got to get going. And so immediately I get these self-help books, and I'm off there, and I'm memorizing the Scripture, I'm meditating on the Scripture, I'm, I'm doing absolutely every program from the Bible, in fact, that we're going to be looking ahead here that I can do. But because I am not doing it by faith, laying claim to His grace, I'm doing it in my own strength, my own energy, and it is not accomplishing the works of God. It's accomplishing evangelical Phariseeism. Now, this is so subtle, and I've gotten into it so many times in the past that I think it bears uh, repeating. Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And the New American Standard uh, uh, translates this this way. Furnish virtue by your faith. This is one of the most frequent errors that people and Christians do. They're failing to be sanctified by faith. Now, faith is not opposed to works, right? Faith does work, but we're failing to be sanctified by faith. Galatians 3 warns us, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish... Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And then he goes on to, to show how faith is, has to be at every stage in the Christian walk. Uh, otherwise, again, it's going to be evangelical Phariseeism. So we don't want that. We want to walk in the Spirit. And in that chapter, or was it chapter before, that, that Paul deals with, he uses an illustration from the Old Testament to show us how we Christians can so easily fall into our own fleshly efforts. And he uses Abraham as an example. And if Abraham can fall into this trap, you can fall into the trap. I've fallen into this trap. Here's Abraham. He's been told by God what God's program is. He's going to be raising up a seed through Abraham. And he's waiting and he's waiting and God's not coming through on that. And so he takes matters into his own hands. God had said it's going to come through Sarah, but he takes matters into his own hands and he says, well, I guess can't work this way. And so... He decides he's going to fulfill God's ministry, God's program in his way. And what happens? He produces Ishmael. And Paul's conclusion is we can operate in the flesh as Christians just as much as Abraham could operate in the flesh. And I tell you, so much of our ministry is, is ministry that flows from the flesh. It does not flow from God's grace, uh, God's empowering. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, where 
uh, I think the bulk of Matthew 5 through 7 is designed by God to get Christians to be not Pharisees and to expose the fleshly nature of the quote-unquote sanctification that the Pharisees had engaged in. He was trying to tell these people, if you can do it in your own strength, it's not the kind of sanctification we are talking about. So there's two kinds of sanctification. There's the kind that the Pharisees did, and any unbeliever can do it apart from grace. Well, not any, but, you know, if you really put your mind to it, you can do it. And then there's the kind that God's grace alone produces. And anyway, people look at Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, they say, there's commentaries who say this. Well, this, is, this has got to be exaggeration, hyperbole. Let me tell you, it is not. People have experienced... And I have experienced the supernatural grace of the Lord taking us through these types of things. So let's, let's read this together. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, I want you to know, he is speaking to people who are sons already, okay? They're, they're, they're believers, but they need to evidence their sonship. Otherwise, they're living like the world and they're going to look, people are going to interpret it as the world. He says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Christ wants us to demonstrate our sonship by doing what only children can do. Uh, heathens, they can love their families. They can love their children. Eh, no big deal. So when we love our children, we love our families, we're not evidencing anything supernatural. He says, what do you do more than others? Where is the evidence you've got God's grace residing within you? Now, to love your enemies, that is something that makes others sit up and take notice and they say, there is something different about Deb. There is something different about, you know, Rich. He's loving a person that I couldn't ever love. How in the world can he do that? And they are exalting God's grace because they recognize this is not something human flesh can produce. If you can love your wife or your husband when they are mean at you as well as the times when they are good to you, when you can love your neighbor who has hurt you and done despitefully evil things against you, he says, then you're growing in sanctification. Those are the testing points for whether God's, uh, the sanctification you have is fleshly or whether it's truly of God. Jonathan Edwards points out that for every Christian grace, there is a fleshly counterfeit. There's an Ishmael. And he says, we don't want Ishmaels. We want Isaacs, that God alone gets the glory. And so the first building block under point C is faith. Faith receives from God, appropriates it, is willing then on the basis of God's promises to step beyond the comfort zone and begin to serve God. Now, look at point number C under faith. Notice how each of the building blocks listed in verses 5 through 7 logically presupposes and flows from each other. And I, I didn't want to just list the graces. I want you to see how they, how they work together. If any one of the links in this chain is broken, sanctification is cut off. These are all necessary. They hang together. 
At the point where the chain is broken, later on, you're never going to get beyond that. That, that uh, uh, link in the chain is necessary for the links that are underneath it. And you can only add what um, you have the faith to claim. So the first thing you need to know is, am I a believer? Do I have God's grace within me? And we're going to need that faith. Now, let's quickly go through some of those building blocks. Verse 5 says we are to add virtue to faith. And the Greek word for virtue, I think I put it in there, it's deal with moral excellence, moral integrity, and it's also got the idea of energy. And depending on which version you have, you'll have translations that focus on one or the other. We don't have any English word that captures the whole, you know, both sides of that equation. But here in a nutshell is what it means. The person who has virtue is already committed in his heart to doing things God's way even before he knows what God's way is. You could contrast it. You can define it by contrasting it with being double-minded. A double-minded person is always weighing out the options. If I do it God's way, will people think I'm weird? If I do it God's way, is it going to be too difficult? Well, if it's not too difficult, then I'll go ahead and do it. That's being double-minded. That's not having virtue. Uh, so it's the opposite of being, of being double-minded. And here's a vivid a test of whether you have virtue or not. You can write a letter to God and tell the Lord, Lord, I'm giving you a blank check. You can ask from me anything that you want. And I'm already determined I'm going to give it to you. Uh, if, if you want to expose some sin in my life that I'm not even aware of, yes, Lord, I open the door. Expose the sin and I want to follow after you. If you want to take a loved one from my family away from me, I give that loved one to you, Lord. Uh, if you want me to be a missionary, I'll be a missionary. But Lord, you reveal to me what you want, and I will give it to you. I've already signed the check. I'm committed to following after you. And if you are willing to do that, that is virtue. If you're saying, Lord, I delight in following after you, even into the difficult times of life. You know, some of David's soldiers, they delighted it, it just delighted them. Remember the, uh, the, the, the soldiers, David just said, oh, how I wish I had water from Bethlehem well. Remember that story? And some of his friends said, this would be cool. And they break through the enemy lines. They get this water. They come back. He's just blown away <laughs> with, with, their, with their love. But they were facing danger. They knew they could die, but they loved David so much. They, they were willing to risk that. And that's the kind of love we need to have the Lord and say, Lord, all you have to do is wish for something. We're there. We're going to supply it. And if you're willing to do that this morning, I want you to sign beside your, your outline there, I commit to give God a blank check. Or you could just put in the words, blank check, and sign your name. Or put your initials beside that. And the reason that this is important is because if you do not have virtue, it is guaranteed you will not have sanctification. That link is absolutely essential for everything down below. Now, you might fear, if I put blank check and I sign here, God may ask me to do something that is just a sacrifice that is too much for me to make, and I don't dare to do that. Well, let me just put it this way. If you can't make that, and you, something comes to your mind, whether it's a loved one or it's something else, I cannot give that up, then that has become an idol. And God's in the business of destroying idols. 
So you're going to lose it one way or another, right? <laughs> but if you give it up willingly and say, Lord, I want to give up my, my wife, my husband, my children. I want to give all of these things to you. I want to follow wholeheartedly after you. It's not an idol. And God guarantees you in Mark 10 that there is no one who has given up husband, wife, children, lands, and all of these things for my sake in the Gospels who will not get back 100-fold now in this life. And so he's a good God. He loves to give back as a stewardship trust to us, but it's a sure telltale sign that you do not have the trust in God. It's not even the sonship spirit we've been talking about, you know, in communion. If you can't, just sign your life away and realize God's never going to ask me to do anything that's not for my good. So I think this is a critical step. In fact, as we go through the sermon, I want you to sign off on each of these points before the Lord and resolve you're going to do this. You're not going to gain the victory over your sins if you can't sign off on each of these links on this, um, on this chain. So you should have a signature beside point A, one beside point B, and then you should have eight signatures under point C. And, you know, I'm hoping that uh, these three sermons can be a breakthrough in the lives of our children, in the lives of uh, we as parents, that uh, we say, maybe there's one of these links that's kept hindering me from the victory God wants me to have. And we want to blast those out of the way. Now, notice the connection that virtue has to knowledge. It takes virtue to be willing to study the Bible with the knowledge that the Bible might reveal some things to us that we might have to give up. And so virtue is a prerequisite to even wanting to know the truth. But more than that, a double-minded person is not going to be shown more of the truth by the Lord. Why in the world would God show us more of the truth when we're not already living in terms of the knowledge that he's given to us? No, he's not going to do that. And if you rationalize around with the truth that God has given to you, what's going to happen is instead of having more knowledge, more discernment, more illumination, you're going to have less knowledge less discernment. Things are going to get more and more fuzzy as time goes on. So I want you to flip with me to a couple of verses. Look first of all at John chapter 7, and I want to show you the absolute connectedness between virtue and knowledge. Uh, John chapter 7 and verse 17. <clears throat> he says, if anyone wills or wants to do his will... He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He says, if you're willing to do God's will, there's the virtue. Lord, just show me. I'm willing to do whatever. Just make your command. We'll go to Bethlehem and get the water for you, right? If you're willing to do his will, then God's going to give the illumination where he's going to help you to see what is true doctrine, what is not doctrine. But you're going to be subject to deception all over the place. You're not going to have that illumination if you don't have that willingness. Turn with me to John 3. John 3, verses 20 through 21. He says here, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That's lack of virtue, isn't it? I don't want to get close to the light. It might expose something I might have to give up, some sin I might have to repent of. And so it doesn't want to come to the light, but it goes on to say, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So the person who's got this virtue, this moral excellence, says, Lord, if there's a new thing that I need to be sanctified in today, show it to me from your word. 
I want the spotlight of your word on my life so that any sin is exposed. I want to get rid of sin. And I want it also to show that any works that are done are done by your grace so that you get the glory. That's what he is saying there. Uh, Turn with me to James 1. James chapter 1. And let's read... Verses 5 through 8. James 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God's not going to give you wisdom, insight for the problems that you face if you're not serious in following him. So hopefully you can see virtue is a prerequisite to knowledge. Well, let's move on. Knowledge is an essential step before we can go on to anything else because we've got to know the plan before we can work the plan, right? And God's word gives to us everything we need for that plan. It gives us the goals of Christian behavior. It gives us the methodology of change, the practical steps for putting off bad habits and for putting on new habits. We don't need to go to the psychologist. We go to the Word of God. It gives us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so one of my duties when I am a counselor and people come to me and they say, here's a problem I've got and I need to get over this, is I try to give them the knowledge. I try to give them the blueprints, the step-by-step process by which they can overcome that particular sin. And so to review, first thing I do is I ask, does this person have faith? There's no point in counseling if he doesn't have faith. J. Adams talks about that because all of the links on this chain are interconnected. And if what I do is I give him the pharisaical approach to this thing apart from faith, what it's going to do is it's going to inoculate him against the gospel. It's not going to help him get into the gospel. And so faith is the first thing. Second thing, as I say, we need to challenge ourselves to have virtue, be willing to do anything God wants. Thirdly, we need to teach the knowledge of biblical blueprints. Fourth step is self-control. Verse 6 says, to knowledge, self-control. Once you know what to do, it takes self-control to do that. And the more of God's blueprints you know, the more self-control is called for. And uh, many people fool themselves into thinking they've got a great deal of self-control when what has actually happened is that they've gotten to a level of sanctification where they can get by socially, okay? Everybody who's around, they're probably a little step above other people. And in the past, they've exercised a great deal of self-control, but they've stopped at this point, and they've not continued pressing toward the upward call that God has given in Christ Jesus. And so they're short-circuiting any more sanctification in in their lives. And so both the steps of knowledge and self-control require diligence. And Satan, by the way, the reason that diligence is required in all of these, Satan is constantly looking for any weak links. If he can break a weak link, he can stop you from being sanctified at that point. And so as you sign off on this point, what you are saying is, yes, Lord, I'm going to implement last week's sermon. I'm going to crucify my flesh. I'm going to say no to my flesh and yes to your spirit. Okay, verse 6 says to self-control, we must add perseverance. Many a Christian has almost licked a problem after 
you know, two or three weeks of diligent effort, and then they give up because they haven't quite arrived yet. You know, two or three weeks, you know, of self-control, and they give up, and it's like they've lost the progress. And I want to give you a little secret here, and that is that most habits, bad habits, take six weeks, and the new habit takes about six weeks of daily diligent exercise before it becomes comfortable to do the new thing where you don't even think about it. It's just the most automatic thing for you to do. And you don't automatically go to the old habit. Six weeks of daily diligent effort. Well, that calls for perseverance. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And there are many, many examples in the Bible that... um, undergird this, and the one that I've shared with you in the past has been multiplication. Um, Let me just give that illustration. Let's say that I was a millionaire, and I really liked you. I liked you a lot, and I told you, hey, you're worth the money. I want to hire you for good wages, and you can pick either one that you want. You can pick to work for me for $1,000 a day for 30 days, Or you can work for me for a penny on day one, and two pennies on day two, four pennies on day three, and each day it doubles. And obviously, any of you who know mathematics know the second one is the one that you take, right? Uh, Because of the power of compounding growth, the power of multiplication. Now, initially, it seems to pay back so little. After 10 days of hard work, you come to me for that day's wages and you get $5.12 and you're thinking, whoopee, you know, I've worked so hard, this just is not worth it. $5.12, it almost seems insulting. And you're tempted to think, you know, I should have opted for the $1,000 a day. I'd be way ahead at this point. And then you get out your calculator and you calculate it up and you say, no, 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 I better stick with the perseverance model because I'm going to get far more in the long run. And so you keep working at it, and at the end of 15 days, you're getting $163.84, but then it really starts taking off, and I think I may have calculated this one day off. It's either the 19th or the 20th day. You get over $5,000, and by the end of the month, you're over a millionaire, a multimillionaire, okay? And this principle applies across life. That's why we try to encourage children to start saving when they're young because if you've got 40 years in which to compound your investments, boy, you're going to be ahead. It's incredible when you look at the figures that can come even at 5 6% uh, uh, you know, compounding interest. Now, here's the problem. The people who are trying to overcome their sins are immature, Right? And one of the characteristics of immaturity is that you're not future-oriented. You're not driven by the future. You're driven by the present. And if I can't get success right now, I get discouraged. I want to give up, right? And so what you're trying to do is help the immature people to look to the future and say, look, do not give up. If you hang in there, it's going to to pay off. And so what happens frequently is a person will get to day 10. He gets discouraged. And he says, this is ridiculous, $5.12, and Satan puts his temptations in there, and he says, you're not getting any spiritual dividends. God's a liar. God's not coming through. He's not fair with you. Just give in this one. It's not going to make that much difference. Five bucks and 12 cents, it doesn't make that much difference if you give in on this one little sin. And so here you are at day 10, you sin, and you're going back to day four. 
and then you're convicted by the Spirit because He won't let you give up on your sanctification. And so you start working again on it. Maybe you get up to day 15, and it's still so little money. You sin, and you go back to day 5 or day 8, you know, and they're constantly going back and forth. They're never getting into the area where there's power in the compounding growth. And so what happens is these people get so discouraged, they hear other Christians who are talking about the power of God's Spirit working in their lives, the victory that they have over different sins, and the joy that God's Spirit has given. And they're sitting there and they're thinking, this is drudgery, this is awful, I'm not getting anything out of this. But they don't want to let on that that's happening, and so they pretend to be happy, pretend to be more put together, and it makes them even more miserable because they know it's a facade. And so they are walking the walk of evangelical Phariseeism where you have to maintain this facade around yourself. Otherwise, other people might know that I don't have the joy. You suspect they don't have the joy too (laughs) because I don't have it. You know, it's like this is maybe just the way Christians operate. And God says, no, if you would persevere just past, you know, those those 30 days, you're you're just going to be in so much joy so much freedom in the Holy Spirit. And we pointed out last week that there does come a time when uh, the flesh is so weak it stops crying and it's not painful anymore. It is an easy thing to be sanctified in that one area that you're, you're working on. Now, you've got to have this perseverance if your chain is going to pull anything. So I want you to write beside there, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep persevering at the things that I'm working on. And so sign off on that point. Now, let's go on to godliness, and we're almost done. We're going to fly through some of these. Peter says to perseverance, godliness. One of the things that I have found over the years of counseling people is that when they are willing to really go after a particular sin that we are working on, for some reason, it affects the whole of their lives. They just grow like crazy. and They only came for this one thing because that's what was troubling them. But because we're using a biblical methodology at going after the heart, they just say, they come back to me in counseling. And they say, you know, Pastor, you know, I've struggled with this other thing. I didn't even come for counseling on this. But I've been getting victory in this and I've been getting victory in this. And it's godliness in the whole of their life that begins to develop. Now, in contrast, if you are gaining the counterfeit sanctification of the Pharisee, And it's a sanctification that says touch not, taste not, handle not. It's an avoidance technique, like Alcoholics Anonymous. You're not going after the inward impulse, and so you're sanctified in that one area, sort of. Not really, but socially you are. But it doesn't doesn't instill godliness. It doesn't affect the rest of the sin nature. It doesn't uh, in any way bring the wholeness of godliness in your life. And so perseverance... In, in true, going after root and branch of, of sin. Some of the earlier steps, and you're an evangelical Pharisee, you're not going to have this tenderness and kindness and brotherly kindness that the, the Greek uh, word talks about because you have been able to achieve a social sanctification that any person ought to be able to do in their own fleshly strength, and you wonder, what is wrong with these people that they can't do it? And you become very judgmental and become very harsh with these people. Just get your act together. You don't understand the, the dependence upon God's Spirit, the weakness that you go through, because you've not even seen the depth of your own sin. Whereas if you've gone after sin 
like the scriptures say that we should, you are so overwhelmed with your own sinfulness, your own weakness, your total dependence upon God. When you see other people struggling in sin, you're compassionate to them. Say, brother, I've been through some of the same struggles in the past. Let me tell you, there is hope. And here are some of the things that you can do. You come alongside of them. You're wanting to help them. You're not judgmental of them. And so these do. They all link together. Um, Okay, let's go on to the last one. Well, sign off on this one, though, because if you found yourself lacking in brotherly kindness, it's, it's maybe a telltale sign that some of the other links have been broken by Satan. Lastly, verse 7 says, Brotherly kindness helps us to furnish agape love. Uh, agape love is not self-serving at all. It's totally self-giving. It looks to the interests of other people. And so you can see, again, that there's a connection here The more holy you become, the less self-centered you become. In fact, one of the things I always strive to do when I engage in counseling is to get the person off of focusing on his problems, his needs, and we deal with those needs, but I get them into ministry. Because as you're ministering to the needs of other people, again, it reinforces the righteousness, it breaks down the things that promote, uh, uh, promote evil. And it's in this life of loving service that Christ says we can have our cup of joy full to overflowing, that joy indescribable and full of glory. That when I was a kid, I wondered if anybody had, (laughs) because I didn't have it. I was a Christian. I went through, you know, all the outward Christian things, but it was a grin and bear it Christianity. And if you can enter into the exquisite joy of fellowship with God's Spirit, it's a wonderful thing. And so just, just to finish off, take a look at some of the things that get us beyond drudgery uh, and that give us what Christ said, you know, I've come that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. It gives them fruitfulness, verse 8. Gives them gratitude, verse 9. Gives them assurance of salvation, verse 10. A total sense of security, verse 11. It gives us life more abundant and free. He is saying it is worth it to pursue after holiness. Without it, no man will see the Lord. It gives us the joy of our salvation. Now, one last thing that I will just mention again, verses 12 through 13, indicates these are things we need to be continually reminded of. Why? Because Satan is going to try to get us off track. He's going to try to get us to forget you know, one of these links of, salva- of sanctification, and by doing so, annul the victory in our Christian walk. Do not give him the satisfaction of doing that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient uh, to give us blueprints for all of life. We thank you that you have provided for us all things that pertain to life and godliness. By faith, Father, may we live from the throne of Christ. May we appropriate the things that are already ours in his word. And I pray, Father, that you would give to this, your people, victory over sin, great joy in life. Uh, uh, that you have come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. This is my desire for this, your congregation, Lord, that life more abundant. In Jesus' name, amen.